0: Welcome to the Italian Wine Podcast. This episode has been brought to you by the Wine to Wine Business Forum 2022. This year will mark the ninth edition of the forum to be held on November 7th and 8th of 2022 in Verona, Italy. This year will be an exclusively in-person edition. The main theme of the event will be all-around wine communication. Tickets are on sale now, so for more information, please visit us at winetowine.net.
1: join me. Welcome to Wine, Food, and Travel with me, Mark Millen, on Italian Wine Podcast. Today, we travel to Tuscany to meet my guests, Australian-Japanese food writer and author Emiko Davies and her husband, ice sommelier and wine expert, Marco Lamy. They joined me today from their home in the beautiful town of San Miniato, famous for one of Italy's great food products, tartufi bianchi, or white truffles. Ciao, Emiko and Marco. Thank you so much for being my guest today. How are you? And is the sun shining in San Miniato?
2: Thanks for having us, Mark. No, it's a pretty, pretty gloomy, foggy day, which I actually really love. I wait all year for this time of the year.
1: Yeah, actually, it's it's a pretty miserable rainy day here in southern England where I am. But actually, I like this time of year too. I love autumn. It's a great season for food and it's a harvest time. So I'm sure we'll be talking a little bit about that. But before we get into that, Amico, can you tell us a little bit about yourself, how you came to Tuscany to be living the life you've created? It sounds wonderful.
2: Well, what first brought me to to live in Tuscany was fine art, which I studied at, at university. Once I arrived in Florence, I I spent um, like a semester there. I just, I fell in love with the city and um, it was autumn and, and it was very quiet and very rainy and just just very atmospheric, I loved it. And so I decided to come back, this was in 2005. And I stayed for a year studying art restoration, which was my, my, my previous lifetime, what I did then. Um, and I met Marco at the end of that year, and he's pretty much the reason why I, I stayed so much further than that first year that I thought I would.
1: Okay, so your your first interest career was going to be in art and art restoration. How did you transition that into being a food writer?
2: Well, it turns out that art restoration jobs are not very well paid, um, which I didn't realize, and uh, after doing a degree for about three years in Florence and working in Florence for another year after that. I um, I realised that I had to switch jobs and um, found a job in a, it was just a, as a receptionist in a tour agency, which was mind-numbingly boring. So while I was in that job, I decided to open a food blog and this was simply so that I had somewhere to um, put some sort of creative um, energy into and um, something to daydream about during my very boring receptionist job. And the food blog really took off, partly for me, because I, I realized doing writing this food blog that that I really loved it more than I ever imagined. And then also partly because at the time it actually had readers and, and this was in 2010. So, um, you know, I think sort of early on for food blogging, And it went really well. So uh, I started writing columns for some other publications. And eventually, a couple of years after opening my food blog, um, I was approached by a publisher to write my first cookbook. And that's, yeah, that was the beginning of that new chapter in my life.
1: Oh, that's a wonderful story. What interests you? What excites you? What draws you to Italian regional food and wine? I know you've written about Various parts of the country, the Chichetti of Venice and about family and cucina delle nonne recipes from throughout throughout the country what what excites you? what is so special about Italian food, Italian food and wine
2: um I think that one of the things that first struck me when i when I first moved to Florence was how um how unchanging the food is. So you know you go from trattoria to trattoria, or you you eat at somebody's nonna's house or somebody's parents' place, and and all the food is the same. And then you look at these old cookbooks from you know 1891, like Apuzzi, and those recipes are also the same. It is it's really unchanging and very strongly rooted in in history and the landscape and all of those traditions. And that is something that I didn't grow up with, coming from Australia and. So I was immediately drawn to that. And then the other thing that I really um, have always loved about Italian food is how it only takes visiting the next town over, which might only be a 15-minute drive away, to find a different dish or a different tradition or some different, um, you know, special produce or something something else there. And I love that because it doesn't take very much to be able to, you know, eat a completely different menu or travel, you know, to another to another place, you can just go to the next town, and you're, and you can find something different. And I, I've always loved that.
1: Yes, that is a wonderful thing about Italy, uh, that that incredible locality of foods as well as wines. Now, turning to wines, Marco, as an Italian, you know, we 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 think that I think most Italians are sort of born with wine in your veins. But to become a professional ice sommelier is a different thing altogether. Have you always been interested in wine and how did you become a sommelier? There's
3: always been been wine at the table, that's for sure. But from that to yeah, to be really interesting and become a professional, it took, took a while. I've actually started, like em because she studied something completely different in university, I studied psychology at university. And from, as you do, when you study, I was just working as a bartender, just to pay the rent of a tiny flat in Florence. And then from the bartending job, I got really into into wine because I managed to work with people that were interested and we started conversation about wine. And from there, then I started taking it seriously. And then I thought about doing the Italian Somebody Association and then got deeper and deeper and deeper into wine.
1: Okay. So you then were able to uh, really develop that career working in some really prestigious places moving outside of Italy to Emico's home in Australia and working with Australian chefs as well as returning to Italy. And how, how did you find that experience, taking your knowledge to a completely different culture?
3: Well, I think actually Australia is the moment they actually bump up my knowledge a lot. So it's, it might seem strange, but I had more exposure to many different wines in Australia than, than in Italy. Because, you know, as we said, the locality of Italians Italian mentality very often brings the restaurant to have always the same wines or just the local wines or slightly bigger wine list but still not going abroad not going to France or Germany that doesn't happen in Australia because all the wine lists add everything like everything from all over the world and I'm very lucky I think I was very lucky to be able to find jobs in places with ridiculously big wine lists and um, with really knowledgeable people so that trip and that period in Australia actually expanded my knowledge in wine quite quite a lot. And then coming back, I brought that knowledge back with me. So it's almost like the other way around.
1: Well, oh, that's really interesting um, because, as you both said, this incredible locality of foods and wines. And indeed, I mean, I remember when we were living outside of Florence that uh, people living in the Provincia di Firenze, for example, drank Chianti's from the Provincia di Firenze. They didn't drink the Chianti from Siena even. And so there is that. In, and in, in, in Piemonte, people drink Barbera d'Alba around Alba or Asti, Barbera d'Asti, if they're from that area. And they don't tend to link so much. But well, that's changed now. Italians are becoming much more open to foods and wines from discovering the, the the wealth of the whole country, would you say? Yeah,
3: definitely. It's changing really, really quickly, for sure.
1: Okay, well, let's turn now to your hometown this beautiful San Miniato tell us a little bit about the town itself the countryside its foods and wines.
2: San Miniato is on a on a hilltop and one of the things that struck me about it when I first came here which was way back in in 2005 is that there's a view from literally everywhere you look so it the whole town sort of snakes along the top of a ridge Meaning everybody in town has a view. So the houses, you know, sort of line line this ridge, and all the all of the palazzi. So whether you're looking to the to the left or the right, you've got you've got views here and views there, um, and that that's really wonderful because it, you feel immediately that you're you're looking out over the countryside, and it's it's a very beautiful countryside. I brought a friend from Milan to come and visit here, and she looked out the window and said, "This is." This is quintessential Tuscany. It's got everything that you think of when you think of Tuscany, and and literally out the window there were, you know, olive trees, vineyards, cypress trees. And there were some like lemon and oranges in the in, in sort of in the, some of the terraced gardens, and yeah, it is this sort of beautiful quintessential view of of Tuscany, and yet you, you're very very central as well, so you don't really feel like you're out in the middle of nowhere because. It's very easy to get to Florence. San Miniato is is exactly between Florence and Pisa, about thirty five kilometers away from both. It's also very easy to get to Siena, San Gimignano, Lucca. So all of these Tuscan towns are about a 30, 40 minute drive um, from San Miniato, and we're also only thirty minutes from the sea. So in in thirty minutes, I can be at the Livorno market and buying you know fresh fish from the fishermen there, and it's so it's it's fantastic. We really we love. The location and, um, and also, you know, the, the little, the town itself is, it's a really nice little community. Everybody knows each other um, because it is the historical centre is quite small. So you get to know people really quickly here. Uh, which is really lovely. And do,
1: do you live in the in the historical center?
2: We're right, yeah, right in the middle of the historical center.
1: Wow, that must be wonderful for your children as well.
2: Yeah, it is. This is one of the reasons why we we moved out of Florence actually, because i've I mean, I'd been living in Florence since two thousand and five. but as as you might know, Florence is becoming more and more touristy. The apartments are becoming Airbnbs. It's harder and harder to live in the historical centre in Florence, and so people are moving out into the suburbs. But I didn't want to live just in a, in a, in a random suburb, sort of looking onto other buildings, you know, so we, we decided to move, move out to San Miniato, which is actually the town where Marco was born. So we're closer to his family. We do get to live right in the historical centre. Uh, I think it's really the best of, best of both worlds.
1: It sounds absolutely wonderful. Now, I love following your your Instagram posts that you put up. And you recently, I think it was just this week, posted about uh, a beautiful picture of the funghi porcini, one of the real treats of autumn. Tell us about some of the foods you're enjoying at, uh, at this special moment of the year. It's a great time of year for food, isn't it?
0: Are you enjoying this podcast? There is so much more high-quality wine content available from Mama Jumbo Shrimp. Check out our new wine study maps or books on Italian wine, including Italian Wine Unplugged and much, much more. Just visit our website, MamaJumboShrimp.com. Now, back to the show.
2: Yeah, so as I said at the beginning, I, I wait all year for autumn around it is my favorite season not just for the weather because I do I do appreciate the sort of the moody weather but I actually I really really love the food I love eating in autumn so yeah the other day we were we were passing through Fushekio and on the road between Fushekio and San Miniato, there's a food truck that is parked there some mornings and uh, he's selling chestnuts from the Mugello and porcini mushrooms <laughs> and so I couldn't help myself we stopped there and bought bought some chestnuts, we had some porcini uh, which we made into just a raw porcini salad, which was such a treat. And then the other thing I really love about autumn and what sort of makes sort of San Miniato, you know, become alive this time of the year is white truffles, which you mentioned at the beginning. And that's a real that is a real draw card for coming to San Miniato. It's one of the reasons why we also look, you know, wanted to move here. Not just for the white truffles, but the fact that because this is um, a, a countryside and an area that is really rich in white truffles, it means that people come here to taste them. And even though it's a really small town, there are some really, really great restaurants that have developed over the, over the years in, in San Miniato. And every November, they do a, a beautiful food festival. Dedicated to white truffles, where basically every street and every piazza in town turns into a, a giant, you know, food market and food stalls everywhere. You can just smell the truffle everywhere you walk during the truffle festival, um, and it's really exciting. That
1: sounds amazing, and of course, the tartufo bianco. It's it's best known perhaps from Alba in in Piemonte, but the San Miniato truffles are equally of high quality and yeah I don't think people are is aware of the San Miniato truffles uh I think the Piemontese are better at publicizing what they have
2: yeah, they did a better marketing job i think than than what than what they've been able to do in San Miniato, but I think they're catching up a little bit.
1: It's only a brief season, isn't it? We're really talking about but late October to December. There
2: there is a there is a technical season in that in Tuscany anyway, each region is different, but in Tuscany there are a set of rules for collecting truffles and you're allowed to collect white truffles from the 10th of September until the 31st of December. But obviously you know, with climate change and the weather patterns themselves, that doesn't mean that you can find white truffles on the 10th of September. They they weren't really, you know, sort of fully coming into, you know, finding like ripe proper white truffles until until the beginning of October so you can find some now um, and you can probably find them even in January but you're not technically allowed to um, harvest them.
1: Now white truffles of course are known above all not for their taste I don't think but it's for this magnificent aromas that they they give just shaved onto dishes without cooking just raw. How do you like to enjoy white truffles best? How would you advise people? Should they be fortunate enough to have a white truffle? How would you suggest the best way to experience them is?
2: I think that the main thing that people should know is that you shouldn't ever cook a white truffle. Because as soon as you cook it, it that that incredible smell, which it, it is like 90, you know, 95% a white truffle is about its, its smell. Um, and as soon as you cook it, that disappears. So you definitely don't want to use it in any preparation where you're going to be heating it up. That's why you normally see people just sort of grating it over the top of a dish raw. That's the best way to do it. And so, you know, because you don't want to have anything that's too strong or like cover the the smell um, of the truffle, you would usually have it with something simple like pasta. And, and you know, also fat is a really good carrier for the flavour and the smell of white truffle. So, you know, pasta with butter or eggs. Eggs are amazing with white truffle.
1: Yes, I like just fried egg with the white truffle grated on. Yeah. I, so simple. I
2: think that's probably, Marco, what's your favourite way?
3: Yeah, probably, yeah. Fried egg or poached egg is probably one of the best best thing you can do,
1: yeah, definitely. Marco, with something as overwhelming and powerful and wonderful as white truffle, how do you pair that with wine? What would you say is an ideal wine, if you are experiencing white truffles, fortunate enough to be in the area, what wine would you suggest people sample?
3: Definitely, definitely, you have to point to quite complex wine. A classic wine, a super, super classic pairing is a really nice bubbly, really nice method of classic or a really nice champagne, but that... Sometimes it can be a bit even a be boring as a pairing. Um what I usually pair white truffle with, with sounds a bit strange, but it's Vinsanto.
1: Oh, interesting.
3: Yeah, because that almost like sherry, nutty, oxidative note that the Vinsanto, it, it recalls a lot the white truffle. And the Vinsanto that we find even here in this area are not exactly super sweet. Uh, they tend to be on the really nutty note and they Really well with even with savory dishes, not just with um, with desserts.
1: So the real traditional Vin Santo aged in the Caratelli. Yeah, that one. What about your work then with pairing foods and wines? That would have been something you developed quite a lot in Australia. Italians tend to drink the local wines with the local foods. Um, what are your thoughts on wine and food pairings? How important is it? it
3: first of all, it's fun. Uh, it's a lot of fun. And in the restaurants, every restaurant I worked, there was always a wine pairing on the on the menu. It's almost like required, especially in Mission star restaurant, you have to have a wine pairing. And luckily, I got to play with some really interesting wines and beers and other things like sake. You can actually do really uh, interesting wine pairings, playing around and maybe unexpected wine pairing. I don't like. I tend to not do very classic um, wine pairings, obvious wine pairings, Tend to challenge people a little bit.
1: Okay. Oh, now, you're a Tuscan living in Tuscany surrounded by great wines, but Italy is such an exciting wine country, especially at the moment with great wines coming from just about every one of its 20 regions. What are some of the other regions and wines you are most excited about? You're really enjoying discovering yourself?
3: So, for I would say for whites, definitely uh, Le Marche the future. It is already present very important in the future for, for white wine. Uh, Verdicchio is one of my favorite wines. It tends to be it's almost like Chenin Blanc for France. You find it in every version. The younger one, the aged, vintage, dessert one. And they're all really beautiful and really elegant. And that's for me, for sure, that if you're a white wine lover, straight to the market. For reds, um, it's not even a new region, but it's still surprising me every time I taste it. It's uh, Mount Etna, so in Sicily. It gives you the, probably right now some of the most elegant wine that you can find in Italy.
1: Yes, I was on Mount Etna this time last year, and uh, you're right. Those wines are surprising, volcanic wines, but incredibly delicate and elegant and beautiful. And so Nerello Mascalese has a great capacity to similarities to, to Nebbiolo as well. Definitely, yes. Emiko, you've written five books on regional Italian cuisine. What are you working on now?
2: So, after writing for so many years about about regional Italian food from my, you know, my my adopted home, I've decided to focus now on a cookbook about Japanese cuisine and explore the food that I grew up eating as I have a Japanese mother who is a fantastic cook and she's probably the reason why I love food so much now and why I love cooking <laughs> and one thing that always I got always asked um, by Italians uh, when they found out I was a cookbook writer Italians would always ask me about Japanese dishes and how do you cook Japanese dishes I think they were almost surprised that I was writing about Italian dishes when they weren't mine but then when you know once I explained oh but I write for a public that you know are in English speaking countries okay fine but they were they were interested in knowing about how to cook Japanese food and more than anything, the comment that I usually get about Japanese food is that people are intimidated by the thought of cooking Japanese food. And my answer to them was always, "But this is the food that, like, that I turn to personally when when I want something really quickly, <laughs> I'm really hungry, or when I'm feeling tired, or I don't feel like cooking, or I just need something, you know, on the table fast. Um, I cook Japanese food. It's it's really simple." And, and it's really quick. And the, the thing is, I think that people have this impression that Japanese food might be complicated because when you eat at a Japanese restaurant, you know, you're presented with dishes that, that are complicated and things that, um, you know, you have a master who has been studying for, you know, decades making that one dish. Whereas um, at home, Japanese cooking is, is a lot simpler. And the home cooking, you don't get to try when you eat out at Japanese restaurants.
1: Okay. And um, are there similarities, do you think, between Japanese cuisine and Italian?
2: I'm constantly finding parallels between um, Japan and Italy. And yes, yes, absolutely. I mean, for starters, one thing I like to point out is is like the shape of the countries and the landscapes. Um, You know, both the sort of, you know, Italy's the peninsula, so it's long and surrounded by, you know, lots of coastline, islands. Japan is the same. It is long, <laughs> very similar sort of shape, and then they are both mountainous. And so you have you have these mountains down the middle, and then you've got the sea very close by, and what you have is a cuisine that is, you know, Monte Mare. <laughs> where you have, like, the seafood and the mountain food. Um, and actually there's a phrase in, in Japanese that the perfect meal has something from the sea and something from the mountains. So even to start with, I would say you know this this sort of the appreciation for the seafood and the appreciation for things that grow in the mountains. You know, like chestnuts. That's that's something that and and, and mushrooms. You know, this is the season for both of these things. And and these are those are very present also in in Japanese cuisine, same as they are in Italian cuisine. Yeah. So even just starting from the landscape, I, I would say also you know volcanic soil, um, so very fertile and lots of beautiful produce. Um, yeah. And very seasonal, seasonal eating. That's one of the things that makes home cooking in Japan so easy. You just, you've got good, fresh seasonal produce. And so you, you know, don't need to do very much to it.
1: Sure. It, sound, it sounds wonderful. Will you be putting perhaps a slight Italian twist on some of the recipes?
2: Um, no no, maybe maybe one or two, but there are there are already there are already some dishes in Japan that were influenced by Western dishes that that are, I think are basically identical to, to some Italian dishes as well. And one of them is called Nanbanzuke, which is basically like a scapeche. Or in, in southern Tuscany, there's a dish called scavesho, which is basically the same, which is eel from the lagoon of Orbetello. And it's deep fried, you know, sort of floured and deep fried. And then it's, it's marinated in vinegar. And it has, you know, onions, and um, this one actually has bay leaf and chili in it. Um, and in Japan, nambanzuke is basically the same thing. <laughs> it's fish that has been dipped in flour and fried, and then it's marinated in vinegar with onions and carrots. And it quite often has chili in it as well. So it's, it's a very, very similar preparation and a similar dish. Uh, there, are, there are a couple of them like that.
1: Oh, that sounds wonderful. Both styles, whether it's Japanese or Italian. I love that. Now, finally, you both have a dream um, to open your own Enoteca. Is that going to be in San Miniato? You've actually already given it a name, the Enoteca Marilu, after your daughters. Tell us about this sonio, this dream of yours.
3: So, we've been thinking about it, I think, forever, since probably since we met. <laughs> and, but we never managed to do it. We moved here, we kind of like slowed down and stopped a little bit. So, we, we thought it was about time to look for a space and see where, what was going on. We found the space literally. 50 meters from the house, a really really beautiful space that lends really well for these projects. It will be more like, let's say, a cooking school and events with a a side of wine and teka. So and we'll probably host a lot of dinners, a lot of um, pop-up restaurants, a a lot of um, cooking classes, a lot of truffle, and then pair it with some interesting wines that you can't
1: really find in San Well, that's a beautiful dream, and it sounds like it's close to becoming reality. So it's certainly something I'll look forward to. Perhaps visiting you one day.
2: That would be great. We're hoping to open in spring next next spring. So.
1: Oh, how wonderful! Well, good good luck with that. Yeah, thank you, Emiko and Marco. Thank you so much for being my guests this morning. It's it's been a real pleasure learning about your lives and your work and 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 this beautiful place, San Miniato. As I said, I would love to come and visit you one day so i hope we can meet in the not too distant future
2: thanks so much for having us
1: thank you thanks see you soon all the best
0: We hope you enjoyed today's episode brought to you by the Wine to Wine Business Forum 2022. This year will mark the ninth edition of the forum to be held on November 7th and 8th, 2022 in Verona, Italy. Remember, tickets are on sale now, so for more information, please visit us at winetowine.net.